Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here today. We are uh, in beginning the book of First Timothy. We've spent a couple weeks on uh, introduction. Uh, we're going to go through the first six verses here today. Uh, but what's going to happen, well, let me read, read those verses, and then I, I want to go back. <laughs> How dangerous is this? Go back to Acts chapter 20 to <laughs> kind of show you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See you next week. Uh, Ephesians, First uh, Timothy. Uh, and, uh, and you can see as you go through there, the issue is going to be false teaching. And, and Paul is dropping Timothy off uh, after he's gotten out of prison in 62 AD. Again, this is some of the things that we kind of uh, assume it all fits together. He'd been ministering there between 54 and 56 AD, a three-year period, while he was having trouble with the Corinthian church and wrote First and Second Corinthians. Uh, then there's that riot we talked about last week, and Paul left the city, went up to Macedonia and on into Corinth. Uh, and that's where the whole book of 2 Corinthians takes place. Uh, and then he's going to swing by on his way to Jerusalem with a huge offering from the Gentile churches to help alleviate the financial burden, uh, the, the persecution, and the, possibly even the famine going on in Israel or Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, and that's where he's going to get arrested almost instantly and uh, spend three years in prison in Caesarea Philippi, moves to Rome, spends two years in Rome. That's where he's in, in under house arrest. Uh, that's where he writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, uh, uh, and then is released. From that point on, he then stops by here in, uh, well, in Acts chapter 20 and talks to the Ephesian church, doesn't go in. They've got to come out and meet him for obvious reasons. Uh, one, you say, well, maybe he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, and he is trying to beat the weather, but also he, he just had gotten out of there with a riot. So, I mean, everybody's, he's, he's, his name is on a list. I mean, he's, he's a terrorist. He's a a fugitive. He's a criminal in Ephesus, so he really can't go into Ephesus. So he meets the, the leaders there, talks with them, and I'm going to read to that what he says in, in chapter 20. And then gets to Jerusalem, is arrested, three years in Caesarea Philippi, goes to Rome, two years in Rome, and then is released from prison at, you know, that's where the book of Acts ends. And we assume comes by around 62 AD and drops Timothy off. Again, he doesn't go into the city, uh, but puts Timothy there, as we're going to see in these opening verses, with the authority uh, to correct what's going on. And what's going on is crazy false teaching. And again, we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, he's going to call it myths. He's going to call it genealogies. He's going to call it speculation, uh, different doctrines, different teaching. But n and again, all the commentators, uh, uh, they, they all say it's like, you know, you can space. It's Gnosticism. It could be. It could be some form of Judaism, you know, creeping in the, the law. Uh, he used the word genealogies here, endless genealogies. At the same time he's writing Titus, he calls them endless Jew, or Jewish, excuse me, he calls them myths. In Titus, he calls them Jewish myths. And so there's a correct, direct connection to Judaism, but also uh, there, it could be uh, the Gnostics, it could be Judaism, it could be something just from the mystery cultures. But I'm going to make a point today that to take a look at, it, it could be Artemis also. And the reason it is so cloudy or not specific is just like when you uh, are around your phone and you're talking conservative governmental things or you're, you're going to go to a sporting goods store, you're going to spend cash instead of writing a check or using a debit card because... Who's going to be looking and reading this? And so he may be kind of staying under the radar and talking directly about the Artemis cult and the, the mystery religions, uh, a mysteries process, the genealogy. I'll show you some of that today. Uh, but doesn't want to come out and say it specifically and write it in a text, which will end up uh, possibly in court. I do believe when he's arrested again in 67 AD, it's because of this situation in Ephesus because he mentions in 2 Timothy uh, the, the, the silversmith who caused him trouble, Demetrius, and all the trouble he had coming out of Ephesus. And it, it causes his, his execution. It leads him to his martyrdom. So anyway, that's kind of the background there. Nonetheless, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through, let's say, 7, uh, just in the NIV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. All that's important. All, all that's, that's important. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command, again, what, what command? To stay there and stop it or something broader? We'll look at that. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience uh, and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And then he goes on, verse 8, starts talking about the law. And basically, you've got him breaking down in verses 8 and 9. Uh, he runs through the Ten Commandments, but he's not doing it like you know, just ten statements of the ten commandments but he's identifying and we'll look at that when we get there it's kind of interesting uh, how he mentions that but nonetheless uh with that being said i want to go back to acts chapter 20 <laughs> and because when he swings by after having solved the corinthian problem and having wrote a letter to rome 57 a.d on his way to Jerusalem with a huge donation, a hu uh, and there's, there's bodyguards, there's men traveling with him, coming from the Gentile churches, a lot of cash. He's going to bring and deliver it to James and the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts. But on his way there, he stops by Ephesus and addresses the leaders of the church, and I want you to hear what he's telling them. He's saying, you're going to have false leadership arise and mislead the church. There's going to be savage wolves, not from the temple of Artemis, not from, you know, the, the, some kind of political party, not from the Romans, but right in your midst. Now, again, think about this. That when they talk about the church of Ephesus, there's not a building. And you know this, but you, I, for me, I've always got to go back and reset my mind. Because once you talk about the church of Ephesus, ah, there it is. It's probably a nice building there on the corner. Probably got a gym, a big E on the front of it, you know, with a cross, intertwined, good logo set up there. And they all meet there, thousands and thousands of people. Some are going to the Temple of Artemis, but many are going to the mega, mega church in Ephesus. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's no, there's no mega church. There's no building. Uh, if there is a cross, it's going to be carved into a pillar or a sidewalk somewhere of someone's driveway. Uh, they're meeting in homes. Now, how many homes, how big are the homes? There's wealthy people there that are going to have bigger homes and people are coming in. But it's, again, I don't fully understand you're going to have like leaders of, like Timothy's being sent in there to make correction, but it's not like he's going to speak Sunday morning at the mega church with a microphone and address these issues. It's taking place in like one, two, three houses, homes. I mean, 10, 15. How many houses are there? How many elders? Does every house have, you know, an elder or a group of elders? I mean, how, how, how is it? It's not a Western style church like we think today. And it's, it's, and it's more organized than just a home Bible study. It's somewhere on that spectrum. So um, that's the situation. And again, we can go more research there, and there's some things in church history we can look at what they're doing. Uh, here we go, chapter 20, verse 13. This is uh, Paul leaving Corinth and, and going to stop by Ephesus. Uh, we went on ahead uh, 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 to, to the ship and sailed to Ashos, and as we were going to take Paul aboard, he had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot because of an assassination plan. He had met at Asos, and we uh, took him aboard and went on to Matili. Uh The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Now, what they're doing... And again, you don't have a map for this, and I'm sorry. Uh, this is the coast. This would be Ephesus right here, and this would be Troas here. Paul is going on foot this way. The ship is sailing. I'm going to stop here, pick him up, and then stop at Miletus here, and there's Ephesus. So there, this would be Asia Minor. There's the seven churches of, of, uh, of, of the Revelation there. And now he's at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. One of two reasons. One, he's a criminal. And two, that's going to slow him down and he may get caught in the winter on his sailing to Jerusalem. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. 
Uh, and again, I got that date written in my Bible. That'd be May 29th, 57 AD, if that's, you know, what he's referring to. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, this is the church that's been, he was teaching for three years here, there. They've been alone now for a few months, and the church is growing. It's thriving. There's people who are coming to the church. It's very interesting to see how he's taken people out of their culture, a functioning culture, uh, with Artemis worship, there's Jews and, and synagogues there, but people are leaving that and joining the church. But not, it's not always a clean break. I mean, they don't really understand how to leave these things, but just like us. You see people come into the church and they bring, you know, when I come out and come to the church, I bring with me the world. It's like, and that's where the transferring, the renewing of your mind comes. Well, anyway, these people are coming out of these, of these places, joining the church, and he sends for the elders, um, uh, when they arrived, he said to them, now here's what I want you to hear. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. He's having trouble with the Jewish people. You know, when he's breaking away from the Judaism. You know that I had not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. That's their churches, house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that we, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's his message of salvation. Turn away from your former religion in repentance and turn to Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by my spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among, excuse me, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, possibly the reason he's never, they're never going to see him again is I'm never going to have my criminal record erased in Ephesus, and so he's, he can't go there. Maybe it's prophetic. Maybe he knows he's never going to go there again, but he says, keep watch over yourself. Now, again, he's talking to the leaders of all these house churches. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And that's the word episkopos. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, so anyway, they're God's people. You've been given a responsibility to oversee them. So watch yourself and watch the flock carefully. Now, here's the verse, 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. They're going to come in, see the, an opportunity, and distort the truth. Again, myths, speculation, genealogies, whatever they need, and start leading people astray for their own benefit, for their own group. So be on your guard. In other words, as the overseer, you're to keep those wolves out. Someone starts drawing people away with false doctrine, that's your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to be nice to them, make them feel comfortable. It's to remove the wolf from the sheep. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing, meaning he set an example for him. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In other words, we looked last week, we could see where he worked there in the Agora, most likely where he worked. Um, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord, Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, it's interesting, he's, giving, he's encouraging giving, but he's talking about giving to the poor, not make sure you support Paul's ministry. He says, I took care of myself so that I had money to help all my companions and give to the poor. You do the same thing. He's not, he's not looking for uh, uh, some kind of a you know, financial uh, newsletter. It's just interesting how he's talking about we've got to keep giving to the poor. None of us are poor, so let's keep giving to the poor. It's like, 
He's not trying to tap into their resources. Again, he's sitting on a ton of money, cash, coins right now on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know how much it is, but he's got men carrying it. And it's not dollar bills. It's not credit cards. It's, it's, it's money. It's, it's coins. And it's got to be heavy. Uh, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that he would never see his, they'd never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship, and uh, he heads to Jerusalem. Now, that's 57 A.D., and now we come to 62 A.D., uh, in, where we just read, and Timothy somehow is being dropped off. I've got this right here. As you can see it on your notes also. This right here. There, here's, here's Ephesus. Now, I, I'm not sure how. I took this off of one of my other maps and made some adjustments to it. But I've got Paul coming back. He's in Rome and is released from prison. Now, does he come directly to the east? We don't know. Or does he go, finally, since he's in Rome, just keep going west? I think he, he does go west into Gaul or Spain. I know he goes there. That's recorded in church history, uh, and I think it's pretty solid. But then he does come back, and at some point he drops Titus off at Crete, drops Timothy off at Ephesus, and he himself goes into Macedonia, which would probably be sailing over here to Philippi, traveling over here. When he writes to Titus, he says, I'm going to be spending the winter. Come as soon as you can, because he gives Tim Titus similar directions in Crete, meaning You've got to stop the false. You've got to, he basically has shut them up. You've got to shut them up. And he talks about the corruption going on in the churches in Crete, and Titus has to fix it. And then he says, I'm going to winter in Neapolis. So right here, a nice Mediterranean city. It's like I know Paul had some tough times, but that was apparently a nice winter. I would think he's wintering in Neapolis there on the coast of the Mediterranean. He says, as soon as you can, come meet me here and i'm not sure how nice it was it just says that's where he's going who knows if he even made it i would assume he did but he drops off titus here drops timothy off there and then when he gets to macedonia writes this letter back and says when i left you in ephesus when i went into macedonia and then probably writes titus from here and says i'm going to be coming over here to neapolis he would have picked up uh the ignatian way across here that goes on up this way but would have broken off and came down here for the winter and that's that's kind of where we're at in 62 a.d now on your notes verse first verse first timothy chapter one verse one uh this is now the english standard version and you've also got the greek underneath it you know, which is sometimes going to be useful for us um it basically begins paul an apostle of christ jesus by the command of god our savior and of christ jesus our hope again all loaded terms uh paul is uh beginning all of his letters with paulos and you can see i've got there the point one that's the style whenever you begin a letter you, you we at the end of the letter we sign our name at the end of the letter they always put their name at the beginning who's the author paul that's so that was typical it's not nothing unique by paul what's unique by paul is the use of the word apostle and again, he uses that frequently. Uh, there's four letters I've got written there, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon, where he does not identify himself as an apostle, which maybe he forgot, maybe he didn't think about it. Uh, but it sometimes appears that when he's, he's putting himself in a position of authority, and this is not like self-promotion, this is putting himself in a position of, I am, and we're going to see it come up, He's been given a charge. He's been given a responsibility. I mean, when God knocks you off a horse, again, did he get knocked off a horse? Was he walking? I'm not sure. In my mind, he gets knocked off a horse on the way to Damascus. Maybe you've seen too many Sunday school stories. But anyway, he, God approaches him on the road to Damascus, and he falls down on the ground. Maybe he was walking. Maybe he's on a donkey. I don't know. But anyway, I, I, I detract there. But, uh, and God calls him to be an apostle, uh, it's something you're going to remember it's like you're now when you get up and start moving into damascus you realize okay my life priorities have just changed i'm no longer interested in this business or this rabbi position or or this i i am now commissioned by jesus christ to be a bearer of his message and that's what if you look right here the word apostle again you've heard these things thousands of times it means one sent on a mission it means he's got the one sent on a mission with the message or the credentials of the one who sent you. In other words, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. While he's there, he's appointing apostles, now Paul, to be speaking for him on the earth. It's like 
maybe I will, maybe I won't. Well, no, you're, it's like it's, it's either you do this or you do nothing. And so when he calls himself an apostle, he's identifying that he's the one sent on this mission. And what's going to be interesting as we go through this, you're going to see him transfer that responsibility to Timothy. And that is probably part of this letter. Now, if he's writing a friendly letter like Philippians, Thessalonians, or even Philemon, he doesn't talk about being an apostle. It's more of, okay, we're all on the same page. But when he writes Galatians, writes Corinthians, uh, when he addresses the Ephesians and the Colossians, he, he, it's, it's apostle. He's, this is the message uh, that he's bearing for Jesus Christ. And now he's writing Timothy and putting apostle on it. This is probably not a, it's a personal letter, but the very fact that we have a copy of First and Second Timothy and Titus would probably indicate they were more than personal letters. In other words, you've got your personal email, but until you, you know, post it somewhere publicly, no one knows where it's at or what you're saying. If this was a letter just to Timothy, and you've got to think that Paul probably wrote more than two letters to Timothy, where are the other letters? Well, those are probably personal letters that no one else read, no one else made a copy. When Paul or Timothy's copy fell apart it was gone this letter the fact that we have this letter today probably indicates it was copied repeatedly i mean to get the odds of it making it here today of course you get god's oversight but you're going to have to have multiple copies of it in multiple locations for it to be located here in west des moines in 2024 which means this letter went public which means Paul is using as Paul an apostle, and from here he's going to go, Paul an apostle tells you, Timothy, that you take my charge and you command certain men to stop teaching. In other words, Jesus made me an apostle, and Timothy, I'm telling you, you finished the job that I started in Ephesus, and these guys need to stop teaching. Now, it's like, so when Timothy walks in, it's kind of like, who do you think you are? Well, of course, they already knew who he was, but it's like, they've read the letter, it's like, oh, this is from the top right down here to timothy it's not timothy's got a bad attitude or timothy's trying to manipulate or get his own group over here he's here under the authority of paul who's been commissioned by jesus and this is i mean timothy is commanded to stay and if we read history and tradition uh was it 97 a.d he's he's executed or trampled by a mob progressing in a religious procession in 97 AD. So he's going to be here for the next 30 years fulfilling these verses. I mean, tradition would, would say that, and the best we know. So nonetheless, he's a representative. Paul is recognizing himself. He knows it. Timothy knows it. But it's probably here for everyone else to realize it. Uh, now it says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, Anytime we go through this book, and I'll, I'll say it now, we'll probably say it multiple times, there's false teaching in this church. If it, if it be of Jewish false teaching, if it's the Gnostics, if it's paganism, if it's something from the church of Artemis, or the temple of Artemis, um, they're attacking the deity of Jesus Christ, the person, the manhood of Jesus Christ. They're attacking the, the, uh, the, the, the glory of the one God, talking about idols or if it's Gnosticism, they've got their own system that they're putting together. This is under attack. Jesus Christ, God our Savior, is all under attack in false doctrine. And so when he says Jesus Christ, that would be you know, the Messiah, the man, by the command of God and identifies him as God our Savior. Again, not just God the Creator, although that's going to come up later, but God who is the creator and also the savior. And when we get into, and you can, you can go into Gnosticism, but you don't have to go that far. You just go into Greek philosophy. They, they have gods, but the world itself is, is bad. It's evil. It's painful. And so they're going to have, and this, again, this, this is a big deal. They're going to have a division, I would you say a dichotomy or something, of you're going to have a creator, and the creator is going to make this world, this physical world, which is bad. And again, you can see this. In, you, you've gone through this yourself. Uh, you know, the flesh is bad. Anything in the world is bad. If it's in the world, it's bad. It's all going to get burned up. We just need to be escaped from the world. And you want to go where? You want to go into the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm is going to be uh, this peace. It's going to be the goodness it's going to be where man wants to go. And you're right now got a spirit inside that wants to get away from this evil world. Well, the, some creator made this mess down here. Now, this is going to get into Greek philosophy that's going to roll into Gnosticism. 
But in the spiritual realm, there's going to be a, a good angel. Maybe it's, maybe it's Artemis. Maybe it's Zeus. Maybe it's some other being over here that this is the true, the good God that you want to pursue. And so you've got the creator, but you also have, which is bad, because he failed miserably. Look at the creation. I mean, we glorify God the creator, then look. Look how cold it is. I mean, you call this good? No, it's not good. So that's this bad God. We're looking for the good God, you know, the God of you know, climate change and going to correct the environment. Oh, it all sounds familiar now, don't it? But anyway, you've got this dichotomy going here. And so Paul, as he's identifying God throughout this book, he's not just going to say God, Jesus. They're always going to have titles tying them both into the Creator and the one who's saving us. So you've got God the Creator, but the God the Creator is also the one who's saving. He's the Savior who's saving us from whatever evil there is in the world. And the evil, as you go through the Bible, is not because of the creation. The evil's because of some rebellion within the creation. So, in other words, in the biblical view, this is good, pretty clear, you know, every day of the creation, this is good, and finally ended, very good. And God comes from light, this is good. So somewhere we've got this evil in here, which we need to identify, but you can't start by drawing a line right here saying, this is the good and this is the bad, because Paul is saying, this is good and this is good. And that's part of these titles, because... You've got God the Savior, again, we'll get into the Trinity, God the Savior sending Jesus because God is the Savior, but to save people, he's going to send Jesus, who is our hope of our salvation. So you've got God the Savior sending the source of salvation for us to have salvation, so this is all tied together. You cannot break this down. There's really going to be no room in this, as you go through this book, for any other gods or powers it's all focused and that's where we talk about god being a, a, a union or a unity or simple it's like simple doesn't mean he's simple in the sense of not complicated but there's not like branches of it over here it's all you know some kind of a diagram god and everything comes from god nonetheless that is what you see here when he writes in the english standard version christ jesus that's where paul comes as an apostle he's got a message a commission from Jesus Christ, who said that by the command of God, God sent Jesus to get Paul, who Paul now is sending Timothy, but it was who sent it, God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, the hope of that salvation. So that's what's being said there in that opening verse. Now, turn the page. Oh, this is, uh, you can see at the bottom of the page, five times God, he says God our Savior in 1 Timothy and, and Titus. And those are the only places he says God or Savior. And now I'm, I'm going to show you this. And again, I, I hesitate because this is going to maybe sound strange, and I don't want it to sound strange. But as we go through all the commentaries, they don't know what these myths are. They don't know what these genealogies, they could be Jewish, they could be Gnostic, they could be, they don't know what it is. But there is this book and I got, I got a, a Wikipedia print off right here. And the use, it's, it's, it's by, and you can see right here, it's, it comes down in the middle of the page right there. It's by Xenophon of Ephesus. And it was dated earlier, it was dated to be around 170 AD that it was written by Xenophon from Ephesus. It's a story. Uh, Shakespeare was got... Uh, it was inspired, it helped, it helped, helped uh, develop Romeo and Juliet from this very story. Uh, as research has gone on, the most recent evaluation of it is it was written around 50 A.D. in Ephesus. And so the ideal of this is this is a story about Ephesian culture written by someone in Ephesus watching it. And is, it, it's, it's a story, it's not history but it's set in the culture of the time. And so you can see the priorities of, of the style, the dress, the interaction, how they proceeded. And many of these things, in fact, right here, I, I've, got, I've got this explained. Well, here, let me do this. Here's a book by Gary Hogue. 
It's called The Wealth in Ancient Ephesus and the First Letter of Tim- to Timothy. So he is a scholar and has written this work. It's fresh insights from Ephesica by Xenophobe of Ephesus. And that's what you see right there in the middle of the page. Ephesica is this right here. It is a book, a story by Xenophon. How many say this word? Xenophon. All right? And it is about uh, probably around 50 AD. And it is about this. 14 year old girl on her way all the women are dressed up like artemis again i don't want to go into a lot a whole bunch of details but they're they've got the correct hairstyle they've got the correct dress they compete in because she's she's very athletic and competes with you know in, in military and shooting arrows and stuff and so they're all trained in this and they have this huge procession like we saw last week in fact you know, we saw t- pictures of the temple. They're in this huge procession, all the women, the young girls, all the way up to the women, procession, and they're all dedicated to Artemis, on the way to the temple of Artemis. And this 16-year-old boy, Hobrocombs, Hobrocombs, sees her, and they fall in love. Love on first sight. Here you go. You've got your Hallmark story already happening right here. Now, there's nothing, nothing Again, we're not going to have, you know, great immorality here. This is there. In fact, part of her is, is remaining pure. So it's, it, you know, you could call it a healthy story, but nonetheless. And so they want to get married right away. And it goes on. There's all these adventures. They end up getting separated. They end up in different countries. They have different, you know, she's got different suitors, but she always remains faithful because she wants to marry this guy who think he th- she thinks is dead. And then, you know, all that. And they meet friends. Anyway, at the end of the story, guess what? They catch up together like in Egypt or somewhere on an island in the Mediterranean, and they eventually make it back home, uh, find their parents have passed away, give them tombs, and live happily ever after in Ephesus with their friends that they met on the journey. So it's a fun little story. Uh, Again, okay, great movie. Now, the interesting thing is, within this whole thing, what we're looking at is all the things that Anthea does to honor Artemis, the way she dresses, the way she does her hair, the way the women behave, the way they call out to Artemis, which now all of a sudden you can see what, when Paul is, Paul is writing the letter First Timothy into this culture. Now this is, this is not the book. This is a commentary on First Timothy that just draws. So I'm gonna be, I'll be looking at this and stuff. I just want you to see where I'm. That's 2015. So you get your commentaries from the 1990s, 2010. They, they haven't made this connection yet. Again, and I don't want to get into myths and speculation myself as I'm teaching, but we do all of a sudden have a window into the culture. So when Paul says, talking about braided hair or talking about dress or talking about myths or genealogies, it's like, whoa, what was going on in, in that book? So anyway, that's what that bottom of page two is introducing you to uh, Ephesica, which is the book, and the character, which is Anthea. And I'll just be referring to that. A couple of things right away. Point A, listen, we've already seen this. The climax of Ephesica proclaims that salvation comes from Artemis and Isis, who are exalted as Savior. In 162, 5, 13, 4, two different places, and the climax of the story, the climax of the story is Artemis is the Savior. Now that's coming on the, the tales of Paul just getting out of Roman imprisonment in 62 AD under Nero's occupation, where Nero was the Savior of the world. I mean, it was a big deal. Nero was the Savior of the world. Now, a lot of people didn't believe that any more than they believe. Well, certain political leaders aren't really our saviors. They're just, but anyway, their coins and everything, it was, it was the... Uh, the media blitz was Nero is the savior. So he's just getting out of that mess, coming into this mess where Artemis is the savior. And that's how he begins his book, uh, Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior. And that's in contradiction to where he just got out of Rome. And now he's talking to Timothy, sending him into this mess where they're celebrating all the time, Artemis being their savior. Anyway, that, that's a connection potentially. Number B, ah, this is coming up later next week. 
Chapter 1, verse 7 at 1 Timothy, are certain men who are false teachers and desire to be teachers of the law. The word there, teachers of the law, is nomo didaskaloe, used by Paul. And when I hear teachers of the law, and maybe rightfully so, teachers of the law, they want to be, they're Jews, they want to be teachers of the law of Moses in the church. And so they're bringing Judaism into the church of Ephesus like Galatia had. And they want to be teacher law, but Paul says, they, I'm a rabbi. They don't know what they're talking about. Got a bunch of Gentiles want to be, want to be Jewish teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. So that could be it. But in this book, Episeica, uh, the word is used and referred to the teachers or the cultic laws. So the same word is used in the book about people that are teaching our, our characters the cultic laws of how to worship artemis and so they want to be teachers of the law but and they're in the church but you're you're combining the two together not a direct connection but he says the word is he talking about jewish teachers is he talking about the cultic laws of artemis or the cultic wars there's also a temple of caesar there uh point c ancient myths is coming up may refer to the Artemis myths that celebrated the procession led by prominent citizens in the opening scenes of, of the book. But also we've got inscriptions on pillars uh, of genealogical roots of the procession participants that date back to the origins of the city. So when we saw those pictures last week of, of pillars, there'd be inscriptions. There are pillars with inscriptions of the genealogical records of why would i be allowed to be in the front of the procession because look here's my pillar of my genealogy down to well it'd be up here this guy was one of the founders and here's my name and so the genealogical records that means i've got access uh that it's in the book it's on this pillar and strabo says that these genealogies went back for centuries so within that culture, now if you can be part of the procession, because if you've got the family lineage, uh, that leads you to this next point, uh, point three, in Ephesiaca, reveals the financial distributions that were assured to those who propagate the Artemis myth, is if you've got your name on the pillar, you can be in the procession, and you get special financing for being part of those that are promoting Artemis. This is all pillars, inscriptions, uh, text talking about what's going on and Paul is writing into that very society uh, and saying endless genealogies you got people following these myths these endless genealogies uh, so anyway there's a, a, a direct connection possibly there that we'll be looking at now go on page 3 after having said to Timothy Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope Again, those titles are important. They're not just throwing them out there to be flowery. They're combating some of the false teaching going on, I would think. And then he says, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, that's just heartwarming. That's his true son. It's like Paul never had a son, and Timothy's just like his own son. Uh, and you can go down that, you know, emotional. It's like, you know, he thinks about him, and Timothy cries, and Dad sends him a letter, and, and it's like that. That could be... Uh, that, that probably has something to do with it. But is that why he's saying true child in the faith? Uh, if you look at point five, true child, and you see the word is uh, genseo techno. Techno is child. And genseo means lawfully begotten or genuine. So he's saying you are my genuine or my lawful son, not just emotional. Again, the word is child. It doesn't mean son. It's, it, it's, there's no gender to it. It could be either one, but child, and since Timothy's a, a, a male, uh, we'd say he's a son. It refers to a natural child. He says, you are my natural, genuine, legal child. Now watch how this develops. Legal child for a father would be his legal heir. And this is picking up on this term, I, I think, and again, you can see it go, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to my true son my true heir and the very next line is i give you this command i give you this charge you stop this i'm an apostle you're my heir you're my legitimate heir get to work in other words he's handing the ministry over it's like this letter is more than just in why didn't he tell him this before he dropped him off I mean, he drops him off in Macedonia or in Ephesus and then sails on up to Macedonia. It's like, oh, 
I forgot to tell Timothy what I want him to do. Oh, Timothy, listen, the uh, reason I dropped you off there, I just, we were so busy talking about how much fun we had on the fishing trip that, would you guys just check on the churches and if they're, no, he know that Timothy was dropped off there intentionally. Paul's dropping off Titus. He's dropping off Timothy. Fix this. He knows what's going on. Why, why is he putting this in a letter? So Timothy can show up at the church service and say, I'd like to read a letter to you from the apostle Paul. To Timothy, my true child of the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. And the very next line, you can see right here. As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there's a few things going on here that Paul wants to stop, and we'll be addressing them today. It's like, well, who gives you the right? Oh, well, do I need to read this again? <laughs> and it's like, do you want to make a copy? And so now, the cop- and now, now it becomes a send-all email. And it's like, everyone's got it, and that's probably why we've got a copy of it today. And that is, when it says true child, Surely you can say you can get him. In fact, I've got it written down there, uh, middle of the page. It's 5C. Paul used a similar title and description just a few months earlier when he had written the Philippian church from Rome while he was under house arrest. He says, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So once again, you can say, oh, he's being kind. Timothy's like a son helping his dad out. It's like, well, if the dad owns an automobile industry and the son has been trained in that automobile industry and he's served well for many years, what's dad going to do with the automobile industry when he's ready to hand over? It's going to go to the son. And so that, that's the ideal of the son is Timothy is now representing Paul, who's representing Jesus Christ. And again, that, that goes on here. Uh, interesting point, 5A2. Philo, the Alexandrian Jew, uh, which does a very interesting conversation there also, he refers, when he's writing in Greek, he refers to Pharaoh referring to Moses as, use the same word, as though her nesio son, or her lawful son, and also as though her natural, lawful, begotten, genuine son. Two different times he says this is how Pharaoh's daughter referred to her son Moses as her actual genuine son. Now, we know it wasn't a natural birth, but meaning genuine son, meaning he will be the heir to the throne, which is, again, a huge statement and opens up a whole other category of ideas there. And then in the faith, it's not a natural, you know, it's not he's going to inherit my business or my car. He's going to inherit the ministry. And that is chapter 1, verse 2, page 4. As I urge you, when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. That's our map right here. He leaves them in Ephesus. He goes into Macedonia up here, probably stop at Philippi, Thessalonica on the Ignatian Way, and then ends up in Neapolis uh, if we follow Titus's letter. But Timothy's left here, and he's writing this letter back to him at this point. The imp- important thing here, uh, remain in Ephesus. That's command how long he's going to stay in Ephesus, apparently until 97 A.D., uh, so that you may charge certain persons. And there's the word in the English standard, charge. And here's your problem. Certain, we'll just say people, are the problem. And it says not to teach different doctrines. Charge certain people not to teach. And we're going to find out all they're, they're teaching false doctrine, they're teaching myths, they're teaching genealogy, they're getting into speculation, which is causing division, conflict, and uh, so here's the, this is the key word, charge. And that's in a box right there, uh, on your Greek right there. Uh, in, in, the, in the transliteration, it says that you might warn, uh, well, yeah, well, I'm going to pick that word up again later because you go into verse 5, uh, if you turn to page verse 5, I got it, the ver- same word pops up again in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, page 6. The aim of this charge, or the aim of our charge, is love. He said, I charge you, and the charge is to tell certain people to stop teaching. And the purpose of this charge, he's going to pick the word up again in chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose of this charge is love. Now this charge is going to, we're going to look at it here in in verse 5, it can be simply that you need to stop teaching. But it's probably bigger than that because if you're going to stop teaching this, then you should be teaching 
something else. And that what you're going to be teaching is going to be, we'll just say, sound doctrine. I know that doesn't do much good to scribble it there on the board. But this whole book is about teaching sound doctrine. And if you'll, the goal of this charge, stop teaching this, and we're assuming start teaching this, the goal of this charge is what? Love. Now, that sounds like too much like rainbows and sunshines. It's like just love, just love, just teaching it. Okay, so now we go to uh, page seven, and I've got our first diagram. We'll come back to it. We're going to build up to this. There. That makes it, see? Does that make sense now? Got it? <coughs> I made that last night. And what is being said in these verses here is the charge. The charge is, is two levels. Stop teaching. And the reason I gave you this charge is for love. Uh, and here is what you're, here's what you're not supposed to teach. Different doctrine, speculation, myths, endless genealogies. If that is what you're presenting, it's going to go into the human soul and cause problems. But if you'll take, well, this is coming up later, God's administration, God's household, what God has entrusted to Paul that Paul's entrusting to Timothy, we would say the administration, this is the administration, God's household. These are the goods. This is what he wants done. This is the plan. This is what is taking place in God's household or God's administration. You need healthy doctrine goes into the human soul. Teach what God told you. Teach what Jesus said. Uh, good teaching, which would be from the text of Scripture or the apostolic traditions, and basically we call it truth. You put that, and this is, this is Generation Word Bible Teaching Ministry right here in a, in a screenshot. Is you put this into the human soul, just get out of the way. It, it's, it, it's like push the button and things happen. It's like it, it, what, if you can communicate truth, divine revelation, to the human soul that is born again, what's going to come out? Love. Okay, now right there, that's, I, I, I don't, I, I hate the word because it, it's, it's meaning, when you say love, my mind goes, you know, over to Valentine's Day. Or my mind goes to, don't be judgmental. I mean, even my, I, I know, no, 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 I got to like stop my mind, my mind just goes off into, everybody's fine. It's like, no, love, in the Old Testament, is covenant faithfulness, meaning I will be committed to this, this covenant. I will follow through, like a marriage covenant. It's like, yes, I love my wife. I buy her something on Valentine's Day. But bigger than that, talking Old Testament form, is I'm committed to the covenant. It's like, do, are you emotionally connected? Well, yeah, I hope so. And we try to maintain an emotional connection and a, a relatable relationship. But if all that fell apart, I'm still committed to this relationship. I've signed a contract. I'm in this. That's old. When God says, Jacob, I have loved, doesn't mean, you know, when, when you read that out of Malachi, it's not like it shouldn't be on a little hearts popping out of God's, you know, the, the image of, Jacob, I've loved, little hearts pop out of his mouth. It's like, no, no, no. Jacob, I've loved, meaning I'm going to crush him, but I will bring him back because I've got a covenant with him. When he's disobedient, I'll punish him, but I'll bring him back. Esau, no covenant. He's just a Gentile nation. He disobeys, I crush him. I, I owe him nothing. I'm not married to Esau. I'm married to Jacob. Now, over here, truth goes into our human soul. It's going to produce this kind of love, that kind of covenant faithfulness, which is what? It, it's, it's, it's God's character. God is so faithful. When he says something, he's going to do it. So it becomes the character of God. If I can redefine now love. Now, don't let me change your Bibles. This stuff enters the human soul. The goal of this charge is love. So I, when I come to the house churches, I just want to see everybody just really happy and smiling and hugging each other and just really loving on each other. And then I'll know Christ is here. It's, it, looks like, it looks like a, and it looks like something that we would run from uh, at some kind of political rally uh, today. Because it's like, it's not love, that's, that's corruption. It's like you have no truth. You're just... You're just, you're going you're to end up biting and devouring each other. This is going to be the character of God, also would be manifest as the fruit of the Spirit, or Romans, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So you put these things into the human soul, 
you're going to get love, which is described, I, I describe it that way. Now, what happens in the human soul is you've got a heart, you've got a conscience, and you've got faith or confidence in something. This heart is going to be pure. We're going to read it. I'm going to read it right in the text. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And this is what you're going to get. Well, here's the verses. Now, just to give you a contrast to that, here's the reverse. As you get rid of God's administration, God's plan, God's purpose, his, his text of Scripture, the good teaching, the healthy doctrine, and get rid of truth, and you shove into that box what is happening in the churches of Ephesus, and you can see why Paul is freaking out. It's like, they're teaching something different than my doctrine. They think something they don't have, they don't believe in a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture. They, 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 it's like, no, 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 no. They're teaching different doctrines. They're teaching speculation. They're teaching endless genealogies. Some people say that's exactly what the rapture is. Uh, they're teaching myths. And when that goes in, the human soul, not, it, 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 the, the mind isn't pure, or, or the heart's not pure. The mind is depraved. The heart is deceived. The conscience is seared. It's guilty. But how long can you put up with a guilty conscience until you build up a callus on it? I feel guilty. I feel guilty. I still feel guilty. Next day, I feel guilty. And, it's like, and eventually... You get tired of feeling guilty and you build scar tissue on your soul. It's like, do you feel guilty? Not anymore. I can touch it and not even get burned. I'm okay now. I'm okay. I've recovered. All right. You've got scar tissue on the soul. You've got, your conscience has been seared. God can't, yeah, this is where you've gone too far. You've, you, potentially, if there's going to be the sin unto death, this person with a seared conscience that can't be reached, why can't I reach them? They've hardened their hearts. They've got calluses on their soul. Or, Paul's going to use these terms, shipwreck their faith. So they've got the human soul that needs to be brought into the truth is fed this myths and endless genealogy, all this garbage. Their mind is depraved, deceived heart, their conscience is seared, they shipwreck their faith. And what do they produce? Lawlessness. They're conceited, they understand nothing, they have love of money, they envy, and there they go. So your choice is right here, Paul. Paul says this is what's happening in the churches. They, they've, they've come into the houses and they've started teaching this in their churches and it, it's, it's destroying people. Some of them are already gone. You're gonna na- you're eventually going to name a. These guys are all, these two guys, they're already gone. Get, 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 don't let them come back. They're gone. They'll never come back. But this is what you should be doing. And so here's what we have right here. I'm going to read this again. I'm going back to chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, I'm chapter page 4, chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. And that's going to be, stay there, this is your commission. So that you may charge, you're going to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Turn the page, page 5. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation, meaning no one's got it. No one knows these things, but they're speculating. And then those speculations, they're getting different groups. You know, it's like, I cheer for this speculation. Well, I'm cheering for this speculation. No, but this isn't even true. It's a myth, and you're speculating on the myth. So you're now divided. It's, it's as, as ridiculous as cheering for Iowa or Iowa State. It's like, I hate them. They're an Iowa fan. I hate them. They're an Iowa State fan. It's like, okay, guys, it's a game. It's like you can cheer for somebody, but understand, don't build your whole, it's like, in other words, you can see what, that probably an offensive example for some of you. Uh, <laughs> nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship which is w- from God, which is by faith. And that stewardship, once again, is household. The apostleship that Paul was given, he's given to Timothy, and he says it's this kind of stuff, this junk, is not promoting this God's administration the, that we're supposed to be presenting to the Ephesians. I'm turning the page. I'm going to read on here. Chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge. Remember that charge? The aim of that charge is love. And that love is going to come from, that. this is the goal. You're going to teach this, the goal being love. And that love is going to come from, there you have it right there, comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This, this truth is going to give this person a pure heart. 
And a pure heart, if you want to look at this very quickly, where I got that written down, pure heart, page seven. A pure heart, there's a great verse, Psalm 151.10, David wrote, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This te- how, how do you do this? Uh, you go out and get, become one with nature. Uh, you go to a praise and worship service, just sing songs until you're silly. Or you renew your mind with the truth, and you now have a pure heart. And a pure heart is right here, uh, this refers to the innermost motives of the inner man. It's going to change your motives. It's going to also goes on. It's a good doctrine will provide clear direction. With, so you're going to have the good doctrine on a pure heart. You're going to have pure motives and clear direction. David is saying, create in me a pure heart. Why? A pure, and again, it's, it's, it's clean, but it also has the idea of being sanctified before God. So the God can now give it direction, you can see direction, and your motives are pure. I'm now going to walk, and you're going to walk out of this with love or the character of God. You've got a pure heart. If your heart is deceived, you're going to walk out with something, but it's not love, it's manipulation, or it's, it's envy, it, it's something uh, going on. A good conscience is the ability to discern right from wrong. How many, I mean, there, there's certain things that I'm pretty clear on, but I, there's also issues, I can give you a list, of, Tony, I've been talking about this, I can give you a list of these 10 things, yes, no, yes, no, but pretty easy right here, it's like, well, uh, depends on the situation, you got, I think it's down in this area, it's like, you know, it's caucus time, who, who do you vote for? You gotta vote for the Christian candidate, it's like, which one, it's like, uh, and now, that's a, that's a struggle, it's like, you know, possibly, maybe you say it's not a struggle, but it's like, there, it's like a good conscience is gonna be able to be able to make those decisions. Nonetheless, the ability to discern right from wrong. Imagine being void of this, and even the simple things become confusing. That's where you end up calling evil good and good evil is because you don't have this, uh, and we're always gonna have trouble at some level making this, picking right from wrong because you know, it gets complicated and the lines get very, very close. But the more this has been renewed in your heart, the clearer your conscience is gonna be, and you're going to be able to decide right from wrong. Not, it's not weighed down or confused by guilt. How, how, how many have ever been this way? Uh, you've got a pure heart, but you also have got something you've been doing wrong or thinking wrong, and your good conscience, it's like you don't have a good conscience. You've got a guilty conscience. And now you're going to get direction from God. Well, first of all, you're like Adam hiding in the garden. It's like you really don't want to hear God. And it's like, I'm just trying to follow God. No, you're not. You're hiding. Well, I know I'm guilty. Well, let's get... Let's, let's get this and get that good conscience. Now you can, you can respond. And that's what David's praying. You know, give me a, a, a clean heart and a good conscience. A good conscience then helps you stay focused on God's will and way. And this is what Paul is t- telling Timothy. These people, they've got certain people teaching them false doctrines, and it, they're crashing. And he's going to use the term eventually here in the next chapter, shipwrecking their faith. They're just crashing into the coast. It's like they're done. Tell them to stop teaching this garbage and start teaching this. They're going to get a pure heart. They're going to to be able to see clearly a good conscience. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I'm going to choose right. And then a sincere faith. And if you turn over the back page, sincere faith. Look, back page. I said back page. Wow. Sincere faith. It means the word you can see in in the Greek there. But it means unhypocritical, unfeigned. It's faith without hypocrisy. It's not fake. It's not false. It's genuine. I mean, we've all had, at some point, a guilty conscience instead of a good conscience. But we've also been tempted, or at least been around, and it's like sometimes uh, you want to act like you've got faith. It's like you you fake it. It's, It's not real. But there's also that place where you get yourself indoctrinated get yourself with this truth in your soul and you actually believe in god you actually believe jesus is the coming savior you actually believe that you're serving god at this time in history and your life best life now is coming later and all of a sudden you don't have to convince you but you really believe this stuff it's not like well i got to go to church and act like i'm a christian i've got to make sure i i I, you know i'm not really don't really have a pure heart. I don't really have a good conscience. But I want everyone to think I've got a sincere faith. And now you start acting like it. Or if here, if you got all this crap in here, your faith isn't even, it's in, it's in myths. It's got no power. This is sincere, genuine faith. When you've got a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, Paul's saying that will produce love. And here's the verse right here. Let me read it to you again. And then I'm closing down. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain, chapter six, 1, verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away, wandered away in vain discussions. They've left this, gone into this, and so now they're spending all their time talking about meaningless stuff, and they're not going to be producing love, not the character of God, not the fruit of the Spirit, not the image of Christ. They're producing something. It's going to be evil. It's, well, you get a list right here, and I look at this one more time. You're going to end up doing this right here. Your depraved mind, deceived heart, because you don't have the truth, you're going to be lawless. It, it, it's going to be, you're going to try to cover it up, make it socially acceptable. Basically, you're lawless in rebellion towards God. You're conceited. You're just trying to win the debate. Uh, understand nothing. You think you understand, but you don't even understand where you're going. You're in darkness trying to find your way into what? More darkness? And it's going to be the love of money. You're going to see throughout this book, it's going to be the love of money and envy of those that have something you don't. It's like, that's not love. That's the human soul in a depraved state because you didn't change it. If you're going to do your job, Timothy, you're going to teach the people the truth. Their soul's going to purify their conscience, their heart, their mind, and you're going to produce the character of God. I'll pray and we're done. We'll pick this up next week. Father, do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would apply them to our own lives, that we'd allow the truth to penetrate our hearts, that we may produce the fruit of the Spirit. We know that Jesus Christ has saved us. We know that the Spirit of God indwells us. And we just want now the Spirit of God to use the Word that is in us to produce the character of God at this time in history in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here.